0: Hi, so thanks for joining us today, Catherine. It's really great to see you on Spotonomic. And And I particularly wanted you to come along because I heard you quite some time ago. I think it's 2017, at the Build Conference in the Usher Hall in Edinburgh. You were still working for Oxfam, and you showed a very dramatic film that Oxfam had made about how money wasn't going to the NHS. So, also, I've seen you speak at the SMP conference as well, and uh, you're now involved in the Wellbeing Alliance. So, I wondered how the Wellbeing Alliance came into being.
1: Uh, so, it's a, it's a long story, Karen, and great to be here, and thanks for inviting me. And good to see you again after after all those years. Um, so, it's the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, and in a way, putting wellbeing as the adjective in front of the economy is quite significant because it's essentially saying we need an economy that's in service of of well-being, collective well-being. So this is not just sort of on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you? This is really collective questions around social justice and the sustainability of of the planet. But in terms of the story of the organisation itself, it's quite a lovely one, actually. I, I describe we all as having many mothers in the sense that About four or five years ago, several different organisations, some based in the US, some based across Europe, some in Latin America, some here in the UK, all of them with folks in them who, in their different way, had been working, some of them for decades, on various questions around economic system change. So there's epidemiologists, ecological economists, activists, sort of company, agitators, all sorts of different folk, and they'd all been working on their, in their different corners on, one, building the evidence base around why we need a different economic system and, two, helping to try to make it happen. And they, they really got to a point where they realised, you know what, we're not short of understanding why, we're not short of a nice sketch of what different looks like when what we need is those pathways to get there, the how, And we will have no chance of achieving that transformation if we don't collaborate like we've never collaborated before. And so we all, is not another think tank, amazing though, think tank, most think tanks are, it's not another advocacy organisation. What it is, is set up to really amplify and promote all that incredible work that's already happening because there's pioneers out there in business, in government, in communities who are just rolling up their sleeves and building A tiny little chink that tells you what a different economic system looks like but until we make that more replicated till we scale it across help others be inspired by it and do their own thing and also until we take those messages up to the sort of government level and say we've got to have a policy regime that is much more supportive of that sort of work we won't we won't crack through on the systemic scale that is so urgently needed. We'll just have these nice little projects which are inspiring, but so many of them leading to burnout from their, their people involved in them and their leaders because it's if you're still if you're going against the headwinds of the system, it's really exhausting. So, so that's a really long way of saying yeah, we all is very much about amplifying, connecting these various different parts of this wide diverse. Economic system change movement that there is, and, and trying to help it become a bit more impactful as a result.
0: So it's an international movement, isn't it? It's an international club almost. You yeah, would
1: say. yeah, very, very much so. So it's a global organised, We call it a collaboration in the collective noun sense of the word, and that's why Wellbeing Economy Alliance, and you shorten it to We All. That's kind of the the modus operandi as well. By you know, we all by working together, we might have a chance and. This system change that's so so needed. Uh, it's it's relatively northern orientated. Um, we've got a lot of members in the global south, um, for want of a better term. We've got a lot of source a lot of inspiration and ideas from movements and activists in the and scholars in the global south. But I, I in a way I think the the belly of the beast the root cause of so many of these global challenges are in the economic models of the industrialized rich world. So it's probably okay that this the gravity and the emphasis on where most urgent change needs to happen. But in my in my team of the, the global wheel team, um, we've got colleagues based in Nairobi, in Vermont, in Toronto, in Devon, just outside Madrid, Several of us in Glasgow as well. Um, so that's a global piece. And then there's also local hubs that are emerging. And so the Scottish hub, I'm really proud to say, is the mo- one of the most advanced of the hubs. It's been around since day one. And it, all those hubs, so there's one in New Zealand, there's one bubbling up in Iberia, uh, one's in California, in Canada, in Uganda, in the Netherlands, in Ireland. And they're all most sort of geographical manifestations of that piece that it's about, working with pioneers, working across systems and keeping our gaze very firmly on economic system change rather than just treating some of the symptoms of the problem.
2: Catherine, we're talking about um, a systematic change in the economy. Um, Previously, we've had some conversations around growth and degrowth. Where do you kind of sit within that area of growth, degrowth, growth agnostic? How does that fit into the wellbeing economy?
1: So the word growth is such an abstract term. It's sort of, be, I think, beyond all, all values. So, Karen, for example, if I just said to you, Karen, move, your, your first question would be, what, what, how, up, down, slower, faster, which direction? And in a way, we're just saying growth. It should beg the same questions. Well, we're not direction? What sort of growth do we need? And yet, this way growth in the economy has become conceptualized in our understandings of success, and also, in a way, we've got this economy that's dependent on and designed for more economic growth. And there's so much evidence that that's at the root cause of so many of the challenges, not, yes, environmental ones, you know, scientists just so, saying we cannot keep having a growing economy in a material sense that's sucking so much, many resources out of the atmosphere and doing so much damage. But a, a growth orientation also brings a lot of damage to communities and to workers as and to individuals as well. And I, I don't think we're short of examples of that as, as well, in terms of individuals being treated as just an input into the production making process, you know, literally on demand at the click of an app. Um, so it, it's bad for people on planet. And so the analysis of those in the degrowth community, degrowth scholars, a lot of whom are part of we all, and some of the most prominent ones are our Jason Hickel, for example, is, is one of our ambassadors, very much aligned. Where the well-being economy agenda, I guess, differs is purely on on language. I guess um, so. I'm I'm I'd consider myself probably technically a degrowth because I buy into a lot of their analysis and to to their prescriptions too. A lot of the, the solutions that come from the degrowth movement are very much aligned with the well-being economy agenda. What I what I gravitate more to is a positive terminology positive vision and I think the well-being economy speaks to that and I guess though I should say we didn't set out to come up with a new term to add to the list of terms that are already out there that speak to economic system change whether it's regenerative economics or donut economics or degrowth or solidarity economy there's there's lots of ideas out there what we what we wanted almost was a bit of a, a picnic blank, blanket on which all those movements and all those ideas could feel at home. Because while they while they have slightly different emphasis, they have at their core a very common essence around repurposing the economy so that it is deliberately in service of what I describe as higher order goals and and they all bring something to that party. They all bring ideas. They all bring different ways of operating, different ways of understanding the economy. So we, in a way, the wellbeing economy agenda is one that sits underneath all of that and connects it and hopefully brings together those different pieces of the, the jigsaw puzzle. But for me, growth, I think growth has kept you know countries like Scotland in a straitjacket. And we see it's almost we've got this very narrow cognitive bandwidth in Scotland, particularly amongst so many in government and the media and that we sort of assume grow the economy good and and that will solve all our problems and you know latest case in point you you hear it how how that's being talked about the economic recovery and we just need to get the economy growing faster and maybe a bit of green growth if we're lucky but but the reality is that growth has had its chance and it hasn't delivered for enough people. It's not as if when Scotland's economy was growing prior to COVID that that, that lifted, enabled enough people to come out of poverty, that it delivered quality jobs for people, that it helped communities feel in control of their lives. And, and so I think in a way we can have an economy that's better than growth, that's not dependent on, on growth and have growth. I talk about it, it's as today because as we speak, the rain and thunder is going outside. I talk about it that we should be fair weather friends of growth rather than its ever faithful followers. So let's just be a little bit more sophisticated and understand the means and ends question, which I think I hope Scotland is intelligent enough to grapple with.
2: Catherine, that's that's a really interesting answer because what I wanted to do was I actually wanted to read you something from the Scottish government website uh, because we've been talking about Scotland as being this new well being economy, and it says building a well being economy is a top priority for the Scottish government. This means building an economy that is inclusive and that promotes sustainability, prosperity and resilience where businesses can thrive and innovate and that supports all of our communities across Scotland to access opportunities that, and this is where I was interested in hearing what you thought, that deliver local growth and wellbeing. So there's that G word again, and it just seems weird in a situation if we talk about the Sustainable Growth Commission, which is a big economic paper, or talk about wellbeing, but there is still this fixation on growth. Again, you just to kind of want to clarify, does that look like it's a little bit in Congress to be sitting in that definition, or is it just another way of looking at it?
1: So, to be honest, I mean, one, it's really exciting to hear the term being used at Scottish Government level on the one hand, it's hard not to think, well, this is good, we're getting listened to and we're, there's a bit of pick up, but I open one document and the description and, and almost definition of a wellbeing economy is quite powerful and, and the beginning sentences of that section you read there are pretty great, sort of inclusive and enabling the context for everyone to thrive and sustainable and essentially along the lines of social justice on a healthy planet, which is the shortest way I've discovered to describe a wellbeing economy. And then you open up another Scottish government document or a different page on, on a website, and it's almost very old school. It's in service of economic growth. I mean, you rem- you'll both remember in the 90s, the images around sustainable development. So you had economy as one pillar, society as one pillar, and the environment as another pillar. I mean, and that's putting an economy and growth of the economy on a par, but the economy is not an objective in its own right it's at best a strategy in service of those goals. And so I think that's the sort of mindset shift, which sounds fairly simple to articulate it now, but it's actually quite profound in terms of its implications to start really recognising what feminist economists and ecological economists have been telling us for decades that the economy is a subset bound by, you know, within society and the two within within nature. And we need to position the economy structure it in a way that it's in service of those goals not a not a goal in its own right and I mean the point about local growth that speaks to the the section you just read out I mean I think while Scotland as a whole may not need more stuff, there are certainly parts of Scotland that probably do need a, a bit of growth the caveat is let's have that conversation let's think about what sort of growth on what terms and this is a rather than just focusing on the rate of growth in terms of GDP or if we're talking locally we'd probably talk in terms of GVA rather than just the rate you know 0.2 percent in that quarter or something like that let's think about the direction and the composition of that growth what is it that we we're wanting to enhance and nourish and nurture and then design the economy to deliver that uh, so it's yeah, like I said, it's quite a profound mindset shift in understanding the position and role of the economy. Um, and I think, yeah, sometimes I see it articulated quite powerfully and boldly by Scottish government documents, and then other times I'm just like, oh, gosh, who, who wrote that? And, and I don't want to become the definition police. I really don't. I, that's just not my style. But sometimes I feel, oh, I have to.
2: It's bound to happen in every organisation, isn't it? It's such a huge shift in mindset that no way is it going to be kind of like a paintbrush that you can just push right across the wall. It's going to take time. And I think it it has been good to see that definition. But as I said, unfortunately, it's still linked to this idea of of growth. But it's because we've got a very neoliberal economic setup in Scotland. It's going to take a while for it to move um, to a new economic system.
1: Yeah, And and the economy we have at the moment is dependent on growth. Uh, so, So many of the institutions are designed for, it's like a car, you know, it needs petrol. If petrol runs out, you're in trouble. So the sense that of being anxious about growth is quite, in a way, not misplaced it's it's fair enough and reasonable on one level but I think it misses the more important conversation of how do we go about designing the economy that's not dependent on growth how can we rather than thinking about just grow the economy big and then redistribute some of the spoils how can we talk about pre-distribution how can we talk about different sharing out of the available work rather than just grow the economy and productivity to have more and more jobs rather than say, well, let's let's talk about the sort of quality of jobs and how can we make sure maybe we move to a sort of four-day or even less working weeks so that more people can work fewer hours rather than the other way around. So that's the sort of conversations that begs. But I think in a way in the short term people are, are almost right to be anxious about it, but I think they're missing the bigger question. They're, they're stuck in the old paradigm in, in a way.
0: So can you tell us some of your visions for
1: pre-distribution and more specifically, pre-distribution in Scotland? Yeah, so pre-distribution is quite an ugly term, isn't it? But I think it's the coolest, absolutely most fantastic concept. And if I'm going to take a minute just to explain why I get excited about it, because in a way, we've almost so many social democratic societies have been stuck in what I describe as the the long way around to try to, to create good lives. And it's a three-stage almost circularity that we're stuck in is, one, grow the economy big but don't pay enough attention to collateral damage on people and planet. And then stage two is try to sequester some of that back out through taxes and you'll know all the political ajibaji around taxes and avoidance and evasion and framing of taxes a burden and how problematic that is. So that's problemat- that's challenging already. And then stage three is use some of that to try to pretty inadequately, in most cases, deal with the damage that happened in step one. Yeah, and that whether that's topping up people's wages through in-work tax credits, whether it's housing benefit, whether it's a lot of the spending on you know mental health treatments or so on or diabetes drugs or so much of this collateral damage. And we talked we're talking Scotland about the reality of failure demand. We know that so much of the demand on public services and on the third sector is a result of that stage one mantra of the current economic system not delivering for people first time around. So the alternative to that, is an economy that does more of the heavy lifting, that we don't have to do this damage and then turn and face government and say, please help patch things up and fix and heal and clean up and with all the costs that comes with that, and let alone, most importantly, the damage to people and planet. And so why pre-distribution is important? Because it's saying let's not pat ourselves on the back when we've redistributed through taxes and transfers, you know, 1% and slightly reduced vertical income inequalities. Maybe the question should be, why do we allow the gaps to open up so much in the first place? And that takes us into a discussion of this nature of wealth creation, rentier economics, So, how much you know, money gets siphoned up to those who have already got money because their wealth makes more money for them than the three of us will probably ever make in a doing a, a, day, a daily job for a wage. Also, it takes into a conversation of who owns capital. So things like worker cooperatives are a really important part of the, the picture there in terms of you have workers owning the capital themselves, so it's not going up to remote remote workers. Questions around pricing. So things like living wage, which Scotland does have a good story to tell on the living wage agenda, those things matters as well. Pricing of public services, provision of public services, all of that matters so that market outcomes are fairer from the beginning rather than huge inequality and then government steps in. Just a tiny little fact. Think of the UK and the US economies. In market terms, the UK economy is more unequal. And what happens is government steps in so much, and pretty inadequately at that, but it's a big lift through welfare and taxes and transfer to the fact that our our sort of post-tax, post-welfare inequalities are less than that of the U.S. But that, I mean, that's, I think, extraordinary. Um, so much effort. And we haven't got an economy that's designed in a way um, to, to deliver those sorts of equality.
2: Mm. Well, the economy works exactly how it's designed to work. And that is, you know, I think that one of the first things you have to realise is that what's happening now is by design, and it's not by it's not by accident or some kind of mistake. But but the inequality and the transfer of wealth is is, is it's it's designed to be like that. And the work that you're doing is to try and redress that and look at another way of de- de- designing an economy where that doesn't happen, rather than just looking at how to mitigate it.
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, often you hear people saying, oh, our broken economic system. And I often say, hang on a minute. It's not broken. It's working anything. perfectly. <laughs> it's exactly
0: what it is designed to do. I, I notice as well, you make reference on your website to donut economics.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I, I loved donut economics. I, I felt like I'd come home when I okay. read it. Yeah. Um, and, and the same with Jason Hickel's book as well. That was almost like a religious experience yeah. for me. I thought, oh, my God, this is everything that I think. Um, so, but donut economics, how does that fit into the well-being economy?
1: So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the backstory. Kate and I used to work together at Oxfam and I, I read one of her initial, the donut discussion paper when it before was even published and it was back in 2012. And, and since even reading that before it came out as a paper, it's very hard not to then look at the world. Through these sort of donut, <laughs> donut-shaped shape lenses, uh, Kate wrote wrote the foreword to my book, and she's also a, a very, we're an ambassador of we all as is as is Jason. I mean, donut economics and the idea of the donut. Should I go through it just briefly for the listeners to yeah. So, this idea, yeah. Kate Kate took the science that came from uh, Earth system scientists, particularly those at the Stockholm Resilience Centre, that mapped out this idea of nine planetary boundaries, if by which we push Earth through those. Um, sort of Earth system processes, if we push Mother Nature beyond that, we'll enter that stage of sort of a tipping point and there'll be no coming back for it. And, and you know, we've heard with the IPCC report most recently just how dire we are and how close and perhaps even beyond some of those tipping points we are. But they're, they're set out in a circle, these nine, nine planetary boundaries, and the bad news is is that their latest update to that showed that we're well and truly past, you know, four of those. And Kate looked at that and she said, well, and she was working at Oxfam at the time, she said, well, Oxfam is a social justice organisation. We recognise that because we see the damage that environmental breakdown is doing to communities around the world, the threat it's having on livelihoods and inconsistent rains and flooding and so on, the damage that's doing to developmental progress in that sense of the term. She said, but there's no people in that planetary boundary series picture there. So she drew in that inner layer of the 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 donut. So that you as the donut shape the outer layer of the planetary boundaries and in the inner layer that she describes as a social foundation. And the idea being that we need an economy that gets us inside the donut because that's where it's safe and where it's just to operate. And in a way that's a precondition of a well-being economy. We we won't have a well-being economy if it's not delivering For people and planet, if it's not respecting planetary boundaries, if it's not lifting everyone above a social foundation. Uh, So it's a beautiful sort of standing point on which the wellbeing economy can be built. But like I said, I think there's inherent compatibility between all these schools of thought and in a way the wellbeing economy wasn't ever setting out to sit alongside or on top of it was very much about being a bit of a, a picnic basket or picnic blanket to link them all and just highlight those commonalities. Um,
2: Catherine we're, we're talking about the need for an economy to work differently and to be redesigned and and over the weekend I've really been thinking about what else we really need to kind of you know break up and start again and I was thinking about this idea of democracy and we're looking at what our governments do very much through this kind of well, Certain window of modern governments with yeah. it being the nation state and a government's elected for a short period of time and then they go to the people and then they're they're, they're elected or not again. And I'm just wondering if we really need to tackle these huge crises that we've got. How does this current form of democracy fit with this nation state and this kind of small period of time where governments are in charge? Have you got any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, a brilliant question. Lots, that probably won't answer. give you a perfect answer <laughs> It's such a complicated question. Rich question with many layers to it, but one is I think our current democratic processes are clearly not not up to the task. Uh, they are very thin, to use a, a, fr- a phrase from a, one of the great democratic theorists. Just that that narrow representative democracy the very thin type of democracy, just because it, it you know voting every three, four, five years isn't really engaging in the process itself. And it's sort of, and literally it's you know delegating to our representatives so many of, of the decisions. And no wonder people feel not in control of relevant decisions that impact over their lives. It also doesn't bring democracy to economic actors as well. So I think we need to be having a conversation about workplace democracy, economic democracy, not democracy in the firm. There are some good examples I think around adding and augmenting, I guess, representative democracy with more participatory elements. And I think Scotland's got a pretty good story to tell here, at least of setting up and running, if not taking enough notice of the outcomes of citizens' assemblies. And I've been really, really lucky to be part of last year's Citizens' Assembly and this year's Climate Assembly. And and they're, they're quite beautiful spaces. I mean, not least that you have 100 people selected to be representative of Scotland and seeing them talking to each other and bringing their own experiences and their ideas and learning from each other and being changed by each other and then coming up with very bold statements of change that needs to happen. I mean one they tell politicians if nothing else don't ever think the the public are not up for these sorts of shifts public are absolutely there if you give them the information and allow them to discuss some of these in their own time and in a gentle deliberative way but there is also something about nation state and and I often get asked Catherine point to a country that's that is already a well-being economy and of course if you're looking through the lens of nation state you won't you won't find one uh, but if you take off that lens and you look for regions or cities or even businesses that are moving in the right direction, you will start to see some really interesting progress and you will see cities being designed not just for consumerism but for community spaces and for low carbon transport and so on. And you see some businesses who are saying profit is not a goal in and of itself, we need to be commercially viable, yes, but let's do that as a vehicle to deliver some other benefits. So almost the micro equivalent of pushing away from GDP. There's another point also around who's who's missing at the party in terms of thinking about transformation and different goals. So we've got at supranational level, we have the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Cities across the world are amazing at connecting around agendas, around um, regeneration, around inclusive inclusivity, around carbon reduction. Say the C forty movement, for example. And then you think of how nation states connect. It's through GDP clubs like the G seven, the G twenty, even the BRICS. The only thing the BRICS countries had in common was that their GDP was rising at the same same pace for a little moment in time, and all that we know of the flaws of GDP there's no way that sort of having global geopolitical institutions that are stuck through and created through the GDP lens is going to take us in the direction we need and so I'm I'm really proud to say that Scotland was one of the founders and holds the secretariat for WEGO which is the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership and this is a group Led by Scotland, with New Zealand, Iceland, Wales, and Finland, and and Canada are unofficially there. They're part of all the meetings and getting all the benefits of being part of these discussions. And where they these are civil servants largely who meet in the form of sort of regular policy labs to share challenges and share experiences and share successes in putting these ideas of collective multi-dimensional well-being into largely economic policy making so and it's a really nice I think initiative of one the sort of international relations we need in the world also that humility that none of these governments have all the answers but they know they need to learn more and learn from each other but also and this is my view not theirs because they'd all say that they're not ready to be held up as heroes but I do think we need heroes and we need to turn the focus onto the New Zealands and the Finlands of the world, rather than just the countries that if you're looking through GDP lens, you'll you'll find the big big countries in terms of GDP, but you won't find these initiatives that none of them are perfect, but they're having a bit of a go about grappling with some of these challenges.
0: Also, I wanted to ask you as well about your book, The Economics of Arrival. Could you tell our audience a little bit about
1: that? Sure, thanks. Yeah, so this came out two two years ago, co-authored with a lovely guy called Jeremy Williams. And essentially it's based on the idea that it is possible for the idea of development to have a have an end point. And it essentially says that GDP rich countries have arrived in the sense that they've got enough. They've got enough wealth and resources. The job of growth has almost been done in the sense of that macro sense. But that's not the only task. The second task, and this is perhaps more important, even though it didn't make for such a nice title of a book, but almost so the second task is, how do we make ourselves at home? And that's a conversation around cherishing the physical resources we have. So circular economy, reuse, collaborative economy, all those sorts of different ways of making the most of our physical resources but also the sort of thing we were talking about earlier Karen in terms of pre-distribution so not just saying well the only way to reduce poverty is by growing the economy faster and some of it will trickle down to those who really need it but saying well we can't keep doing that because of the science around planetary boundaries We need a different solution. There's that lovely phrase, if you've got more than others, build a longer table, not a higher fence. And that's, in a way, what we need to be doing is sharing that wealth better and designing the economy in a way that it generates more equal outcomes. So that's what Arrival is about, and it's got loads and loads of different examples of what this means in practice. Jeremy, my my co-author, I think counted them up, and he said we've got examples from over 50 different countries And it also talks through towards the end, there's a chapter around the idea of system change and different aspects around narratives and mobilisation and activism and different leverage points. So there's a bit of a a beginner's guide to understanding um, how change happens there as well.
2: Uh, Catherine, we had a brilliant conversation in our la- last episode about relative wealth. And we showed this example of a chap on Question Time who was complaining that £80,000 was, wasn't enough to live on effectively and that he would be taxed and he's not in the top 5%. And everyone in the audience was saying, yes, you are. And um, Something similar is going to happen with nations because we if we're talking about this kind of global redistribution and, and and the need for a well-being economy to look at you know a longer table, it's going to be difficult for 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 nations who don't see themselves as relatively wealthy to realize they they have to start giving to poorer nations. Have you any thoughts around that and kind of some kind of idea of the scope of that difficulty?
1: so sure, it's a it's a brilliant question. I mean one, there's this idea of contraction and convergence that I think is very. Familiar to scholars in the degrowth community and and to ecological economists for for a long time, that there are those countries that need more need to converge, and those who've got too much need to contract to a a steady state. That Herman Daly, who's one of the the great scholars in in this field, almost the founder of a lot of this thinking, would describe. But also, one of the the key realities is that there is what happens is diminishing marginal returns set in. And this is something that I I was trying to explain this to my my brother, who's a a, um, personal trainer the other day, so not in sort of economics terms. And he loves his cheese, which is okay because he's a personal trainer so he can get away with it. And and I was saying, right, you go to the market and you try a bit of cheese from the cheese store and the first few bites are pretty good and then the next few bites are also pretty good but not, not as good as the first one. By the time you're on your 10 or 12, there's certainly lost all benefit. And, I mean, that's a bit of a flippant example, but the reality is that the idea of diminishing marginal returns set in in terms of the returns to growth. And there's lots of ways of looking at this. One of... One of the great analysis is done by members of WEALS, the Social Progress Imperative, and they they have mapped what they call the social progress index. It's got over 50 different dimensions, and they they map it up, the, sort of the, the y-axis of a graph, and then along the x, x-axis, they put GDP per capita and plot various countries, and, and what you see in those sorts of diagrams is that at early stages of economic development, you do when it's used well, particularly invested in collective institutions, health systems, education systems, you do get fairly good returns in terms of social progress. But they start to tail off. And so that's the idea of arrival, actually, is that countries have, have got to the point where they've arrived. And you could measure that by has those diminishing returns started to settle in. You could measure it by are there enough material resources and there's a lot of work being gone, being done, particularly by people at the University of Leeds, of what's the material need and the energy need to meet basic needs and, and flourishing. So it's amazing, amazing work being done by scholars there. But you could also look at it when this idea of failure demand um, or that I talked about earlier, when that that kicks in, that essentially we're doing all this damage just to churn out more and more growth and then that we're spending that to, to heal so there's lots of different lenses that you could bring to try and figure out have, have we got to the point of arrival and is it time to actually begin a new task of, of making ourselves at home and and I think that's sort of the conversation we need to be having with those those richer countries William that actually your you're, the job's been done you need a different journey now this isn't a scary journey it's not one of giving up. It's one of embracing a new, exciting conversation. We still have improvement. We still have arts. We still have innovation. Mm. We still have businesses that are doing creative stuff and meeting needs, but it's for a different purpose.
2: Well, well, that really leads to the importance of tackling inequality because the nation states will not move when x percent of the population still can see that they are so much poorer off than than, than others within that economy. So
0: The last thing you're talking about as well brings me really nicely into a quote that I found on your website, which said, it's a, from a YouGov poll, that in the UK, for example, only nine percent of the respondents in the UK wanted things to return to how they were before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. and I think that's a really strong indicator for politicians to understand that Um, people want things to change and that you know I certainly for me on a personal level and I know other people clearly experienced this from that quote is that life was a bit crazy before (laughs) and they're they're quite enjoying the fact that it's not so mad anymore and we're not rushing around like headless chickens Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think there's there's something in that that people will hopefully Mm -hmm. on mass the experience of the pandemic I think is perhaps brought a lot of understanding
1: of what's really important in life. Mm-hmm. Karen, I'm one of these geeks who I store those sort of opinion polling results. So it's there's UK versions of that sort of figure, there's Scottish versions of that sort of figure, there's global versions of that sort of figure that his huge majority really saying we, we want our governments, our economic systems to be designed and purposed for health, well-being, for solidarity. We want our governments to pay attention to inequalities. We don't want you to return to that growth orientation. And you marry into that some of the deliberative conversations that we were talking about earlier as well. So it's not just the opinion polling where you get a snapshot answer from someone, but really rich discussions. But also you can marry that into, as you've alluded to there, conversations that that you'd have with your friends and your family about what sort of life are people envisaging. And for those who were super, super busy trying to put food on the table, you know, working three jobs just to make ends meet. That's the urgent challenge. And I think what COVID has done is really shone a spotlight on just those stark, stark, stark inequalities and and how the UK economy was standing on the shoulders of a very low-paid, precarious workforce, but there's also those who, I guess, who are lucky enough to think a little bit more about, oh, maybe I was working too much just for some status goods or to buy the trendiest new quick kitchen design or or something like that. And actually, maybe it's been nice spending a bit more time with the kids. I mean, maybe that depends on your kids, but but for most people, one would hope it's nice spending a bit more time with your family or, and not commuting. I, I to be really honest with you, I have mixed feelings of how much of that will stay. Um, I think that just, I mean, I don't know how representative this is, but I also shudder when I see people rushing on planes to get a weekend in in Spain as, as soon as the, the border restrictions change. Um, what I think might stay is, is at the very least is less propensity to jump on a plane for one business meeting. Um, I mean, it used to be that to be a serious person in the investment manager world, you have had to be—they call them a road warrior. You have to be out on the on the road all the time, and hopefully, that's just been shown to be patently pretty stupid. Um, so there, there's a bit of hope there, but I think there's a lot of other forces pushing back towards business as usual as well that we need to be really attentive to and and keep pushing politicians and keep reminding them this is not what the general public want. We want we want folks you know to help embrace this new way of doing things. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I, I actually, I really hope that the the pandemic could be an opportunity to push forward a well-being economy. <laughs> I hope so.
1: There's a lovely phrase um, from William Beveridge. And so this is him writing in 1942 on the pages that set the groundwork for the, the NHS and the social security system, saying a, a revolutionary moment in the world's history of, you know, of which COVID is, is a time for revolutions, not for patching. And I think our governments need to have that ringing in their ears as they're thinking about how do we yeah create yeah how do we build that better how do we create a different economic system? It's got to be bold. It's got to look upstream. It's got to not just treat the symptoms. Because if we can't do it now, as you were talking about earlier, William, with the the Overton window, it is well and truly being blown open. Uh, so yeah, we've got to we've got to make the most of it no
2: i don't know if it's that thing where you know if you buy a red car you start seeing more red cars on the road but i'm just wondering at the moment because i'm so concerned about what's happening in the world with the climate crisis i'm just seeing more coverage of it or do you think there is more coverage and more awareness? And do you think, if that's the case, will this start to lead to, to the the type of change that we need?
1: I, th- I think there have been some moments that have really pushed this onto public consciousness. I think a couple of years ago it was sort of Attenborough really pushing the question of plastic onto public consciousness, like like only David Attenborough can do, and that probably led to the straw, the paper strawing of McDonald's in Barcelona. Uh, but there's there's... I think there is a bit more reporting, which is a good thing that media is paying attention to this. And we're also seeing them taking the time to speak to scientists who are able to make that connection between individual weather events and climate breakdown and connect them. Whereas in the past, they might have feel the need to wheel out some token climate denier that's in the vast, vast, vast majority. I mean, even the the IPCC report that was out today that's over 14,000 different pieces of peer-reviewed research of over 200 scientists I mean there, there is there is one or two scientists out there who don't get the, the link between human-induced climate breakdown so so I think that attention is happening but I also I do think it's getting worse and I think all the evidence is that it, it really is getting worse so even if the reporting's not getting greater there's more to report on um, so that's That's important, I think, you know, just really ramming home in people's ideas, people's minds, just how urgent this shift is. And so small steps matter. So the straw matters because maybe it enables your kids to have a conversation about, well, is this enough and what about where the beef came from? And maybe next time we go for the veggie burger and it can spark discussion. But ultimately these are questions not just about individual Individual choices, these are systemic questions. And individual choices matter because they start to, one, help people feel part of something positive and help feel a bit of agency so they don't, don't just despair. But perhaps also as, as important is they help show to politicians that there is a groundswell here. People, This does matter to people. And, again, it's about politicians just getting on the right side of history and backing those sorts of changes. So um, I think we've kept you long enough, Catherine,
0: and um, I'd just like to say thanks again for coming on the show and
1: maybe we can get you on again soon Oh such a pleasure it's been a really nice end to a really busy day so great to spend time with you both I'd be delighted Thank you you very much
2: that was fantastic Thank you
1: Thank you